0: We are in Genesis 35 this morning. Why am I going to the New Testament? My brain just, I don't know. Uh, we're, gonna, we're coming sort of to the end of our time that focuses upon Jacob. Uh, there's going to be a shift that takes place um, in a, next week, actually. And um, the focus when we get back from Resurrection Day is going to be on the, the sons of Jacob, predominantly Joseph and uh, Judah. So we're kind of getting to the end of the focus on Jacob this morning with all of this, and it's hopefully going to end on a better note than it was last week. So um, let us read from verses uh, 1 through 15 in Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Let us then arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone." So they all gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the tenebreth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And there he built an, author, uh, an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, and he called its name Elon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padan Aram, And blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called uh, Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Scriptures, which you have given us by the power of the Spirit to make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask that you would make this time profitable for us, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Make us mature, people who are fully equipped for the good works as we study the Scriptures this morning. I ask this in Christ's name, amen. I can't remember if I've uh, talked about this with you guys before, but uh, I see a connection with the second law of thermodynamics in the spiritual life. For those of you who went, which one is the second law of thermodynamics, which may be a lot of you, but the engineers already know don't they okay that is that things may start with order but move toward decay unless there is an investment of energy in them to maintain that order you might be going okay steve what does that have to do with the spiritual life what this has to do with the spiritual life is that your growth or maintenance of the your spiritual life requires an investment of energy, otherwise you will decline spiritually. The Puritans talked about this as spiritual declension. We, we talk about this, I talked about it last week in the idea of losing sight of grace. When grace is, we are not, when we are not growing in grace, that means we are growing in worldliness. We're losing our spiritual power, our spiritual vitality. We're falling into greater disobedience as a result because it is the grace of God and only the grace of God which can maintain our spiritual lives and which in which we can grow and become more powerful spiritually, deepen in our faith. Our big idea this morning is that God restores us to grace so that we can worship and obey Him. Let's start with the idea that God is the one who initiates the restoration of grace. Let's let's see what is going on here. Let's remember what happened last week, because this falls, it's exactly immediately after what happened. It had been about 10 years since returning home to Canaan, and and Jacob had experienced this spiritual decline. He had experienced this, this, he lost sight of grace. Grace. And in the midst of this spiritual decline, and he's, he's failing to lead his family. And so what ends up happening is that all chaos breaks loose. His daughter is brutally assaulted. His sons seek vengeance and the slaughter of the people of Shechem. It's a disaster that takes place. But I want you to notice something just from that. See how hard it is to walk in grace when you alone. Because that is the situation for Jacob. He is the spiritual leader. There's no church for him. They are the church. That family is the church. And so when he's not surrounded by others who who are vibrant in their faith, he begins the spiritual decline. There's no one to remind him of the grace of God. He begins the spiritual decline. He loses sight of grace. I usually don't call out people in in sermons, but Bill, you, you're going to a place where you need to find the church. Because if you seek to live apart from the church, you will experience spiritual decline. Any of us will experience this. If we're not vibrantly engaged in the life of the church, we will decay, we will decline. You were not made to live this life of faith alone. That's why he, gave, he joins us to the body of Christ. We desperately need one another. Jacob doesn't have that, and so he experiences this, this, this decline. The slaughter at Shechem has put his whole family in danger because now he's afraid, and rightfully so, that the other cities may rise up and seek to destroy him and his family, his household, his people that are with him. Is there a way out? And we see, in fact, that there is a way out because God intervenes. This is not a way out that Jacob came up on his own, but God steps in. The God that Jacob had been ignoring comes up. Don't we also ignore God sometimes? But notice what happens here. God is not coming here to reject him. He's not not showing up to say, how do you like them apples, dude? Hope you enjoy them. Have a nice day. He comes to deliver this man and his family. He comes to restore him to grace. He comes to rescue. And the first thing he says is, arise, go up to Bethel. And he, he literally had to go up to Bethel because when you look at uh, Shechem and you look at Bethel, not only is it north, but it's about 1,000 feet higher in elevation. So he had to literally go up to Bethel. He is commanded to finally keep his vow, the vow that he made 30 years earlier when he was fleeing from his brother who was breathing out death threats. He said that when God brought him back, he would go to Bethel. God's saying, "Now is the time." That probably stung Jacob just a little bit, wouldn't it? When you know, when you've promised someone in your family that you would do something, and you know, two days later they remind you, "Are you going to take out the garbage, <laughs> or whatever it is?" Don't you feel the sting? Like, "Oh, I failed." He probably feels the sting, but there's something that we, we can't. Overlook here, and that is the idea that grace leads to obedience. Grace is, I mean, sorry, obedience is not the cause of grace. Grace is the cause of obedience. God intervenes precisely so Jacob can obey. Grace produces freedom to obey. It does not produce freedom from obedience, but it produces freedom to obey. Yesterday I was I was listening to uh, the prayer breakfast, and I was listening both to Eric Metaxas and to President Obama as they were, they were talking, uh, well, they are giving speeches at this prayer breakfast. And one of the things that Metakas had, had brought out that I thought was very important that connects with this particular thing is he brings up from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and from the life of William Wilberforce and their uh, ability to stand against what they saw as, and rightfully so, injustice and a corrupt government in particular areas. And what he said was, is that it was because they had met the living God. It was because they had experienced grace from the living God that they were able to radically obey Him. That's what we see right here. He has has met the living God, and this living God is saying, now walk in obedience to Me. Titus 2 For the grace of God has appeared, in the person of Jesus Christ, I'll add, bringing salvation for all kinds of people. But catch this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Did you catch that key word there? Training us. It's not automatic. And so the grace of God works. Jesus works in us by the power of the Spirit and through the testimony of the Scriptures to train us to walk in a way that pleases Him. And that's exactly what Jacob is is getting right now. God is beginning to train him that he might live uprightly, though he is surrounded by unrighteous people. Our salvation rests completely upon Christ's obedience. But, that salvation includes the the power to begin to walk in obedience. Do you have outstanding vows that you need to keep? Now is the time for delayed obedience, otherwise known as disobedience is one of the primary causes of spiritual ent- entropy that that declension that the puritans talk about but we have to remember that it is god who restores it is not us we don't believe in bootstrap christianity it's the grace of god so he's to go up to bethel he is also to make an altar it is not just about where he lives But ultimately, this is about worship. He is to build an altar and to worship the right God in the right place. Disobedience will necessarily compromise our worship. We will will worship reluctantly. We will worship half-heartedly when we are filled with guilt and fear. That guilt and fear must be removed for us to worship freely passionately righteously israel okay I remember the, the original audience what is, what is going on in, in Jacob's life is meant to speak to the condition of the Israelites as they're about to go into the promised land. And they had to remember, we are to go where God has told us to go through the inheritance. We are to build the, uh, a temple where God decides to place his name. And we are to worship him according to how he has told us to worship in his word. I feel excitable this morning. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. They are to worship the right God in the right place and in the right way. We are to worship the right God in the right person, Jesus Christ, the living temple, okay? That we're joined to, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2, other places, okay? Okay. We worship in spirit and in truth. We worship the right way. It is not merely the 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 rituals that we uh, take place. We are to worship by faith in spirit and in truth. And we can do this precisely because it is Jesus Himself who removes our guilt and our fears. He sets us free to worship. And he sends his spirit within us so that we can worship not not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly in reverence and joy. So what we see here is that though we are responsible for losing sight of grace, it is God himself who restores us to live by grace. The second part of this is where I'm going to camp for a while, so hang on. Be patient with me. Okay, restored grace leads us to repentance. God's restoration kind of leads to this clear response from Jacob to lay aside sin. Essentially, Jacob is saying no to unrighteousness. He's being trained from this, he is stirred from his passivity. And he begins to take charge of his family. Because now he's telling them what to do. His sons before had just kind of gone off on their own and done this thing and and lied to the people of Shechem and had slaughtered the people of Shechem and plundered them. He was very passive. You see it all the way back in his early relationship with his wives. There was a passivity, and he was doing what they told him to do. He was not the one who was leading his home. And now, finally, he leads his home. He's restored in part to leadership in his home. And he says, first of all, put away the foreign gods apparently his household the people and the people that were with him the servants had accumulated false gods along the way and these false gods would include the ones that his beloved Rachel had hid beneath her the ones that she had stolen from her father these were to now be put away they were to accumulate them Bury them under the terabith tree. Jacob here is calling for total allegiance to the God who had delivered him, to the God that had visited him at Bethel, to the God who was calling him back to Bethel, to the house of God. And so they take their gods and they take these rings. These these earrings that they had were not just like our earrings, but they were often expensive and they were often dedicated to various deities. And so they were a sign of their allegiance to that god. And so they were to take those rings and to cast them aside as well. Now was the time to reject them. Now was the time to put them aside. Not after you played with them a little bit longer. Now was the time, he says. And the word that is used here for for put them aside is often used to to describe apostasy. They are essentially supposed to apostatize from the false gods that they might truly worship the true God. Kind of ironic, isn't it? But that's what... Scripture is calling them for, to do at this particular point. This is an important thing, again, for the people of Israel as they're coming into this land, because they had had accumulated gods in Egypt, and they needed to get rid of those gods before they went into the promised land. Okay, And we see that covenant renewal ceremony that takes place. But not only that, is when they enter the land of Canaan, there's going to be profound temptation. Because remember what they have done for generations... In Jacob's time, they are shepherds. They keep livestock. They're not farmers. They go into Egypt, and initially they're there as to keep the livestock, but eventually they become enslaved, and they build the pyramids and other buildings. They have no experience planting crops and bringing them to the harvest. And what is their economy going to be based upon in the promised land? Agriculture. They would be tempted to seek the gods of the Canaanites because the gods of the Canaanites were fertility gods. And if you're a farmer, what do you want? Fertility. They were going to experience this profound temptation, and God is warning them right here do not go with the foreign gods. I'm big enough to help you have crops. The early church also put away idols, both physical and otherwise, because we are idol factories. Acts 19. I had to read this to my daughter recently for Bible study fellowship, so it was sort of fresh in my brain. Also, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to fifty thousand pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so the grace of God comes to these people in Ephesus. They are converted, and part of their repentance is to take these very expensive scrolls and spells and everything else, these magic arts, and to burn them. They were turning away from seeking spiritual powers that were not the living God. Grace produced obedience. And what was the result of what, of what takes place here? Is that the, Lord, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God was using them even more profoundly because the, the grace resulted in repentance. What is an idol? We mentioned it, I haven't actually defined it. Some people have defined it, and, and actually I think I've kind of taken all of these different definitions and stuck them into this thing. Supplemental saviors that we use to make life satisfying, successful, or secure. In essence, we're looking for life for, from someone or something besides Not necessarily instead of, Christians do this too, besides, in addition to, Jesus. Think of it this way, because the the relationship we have with God is a covenant relationship. And so, I have a covenant relationship with my wife. And what if I were to say, you know what, ever since Jaden was born, Amy hasn't had time to iron for me. And, and so I'm going to supplement Amy with someone else to iron for me. And so I'm going to get another wife who will iron for me. That would be a, that would be a violation of the covenant relationship. Okay? that's what we do. We add these other people, these other things into our lives to supply something that we think Jesus isn't giving us, and so we violate the covenant relationship that we have with him. Let's see this in a couple of instances, what it looks like. The life of Rachel early on in their marriage. When Rachel saw that her sister bore Jacob no children. She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. That's a sign of idolatry. If you think that not getting something and not having your way means that you're, you're going to die, it's probably the sign of an idol. If you even think that to somebody, it's probably a sign of an idol. There's something there that you treasure more than God himself. And there's an idol. Another way to look at it is, is I, I read uh, Elise Fitzpatrick's book, or part of the book. I have read the whole book earlier, but flipping through it, looking for quotes. And she puts it this way, if you're willing to sin to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, so she looks at it from both, both sides. You're sinning to get it, or if you don't, then you sin. Then your desire has taken God's place, and you're functioning as an idolater. So there are things in our lives that we look to besides or in addition to Jesus and say that I need this to be satisfied. And if you're thinking you, you, know, you need a lot of people, spouses, I need a spouse to really live, then you're getting close to idolatry. Okay? If you think you need something to be successful, aside from Jesus, then, then that thing is probably an idol or security. How many people look to the government for security instead of Jesus? Statism is a huge problem in our land. We want, you know, the nanny government. It's an idol to us in many ways. Each of us have these idols that we need to begin to put away. None of us is exempt. Calvin wasn't lying when he said that the heart is a factory of idols. All of us do this. Is what we, it's, it's the natural condition of our heart, apart from grace, is to make idols. It could be as innocuous as a sports team, but it's still dangerous to your soul. And it's hard to put these things away because we love them. Thought of Lewis's book, *The Great Divorce*, and one of the characters that is there, uh, you know, they're deciding whether they want to basically go into heaven or, or they want to go back to hell. And there's this little lizard on the guy's shoulder who whispers to him, who 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 is speaking. If its desires to him, and in a sense enslaving him, and the angel says, "I can take care of that for you," it says it's too painful. It was he loved his desires so much he was not willing to get rid of the little lizard on his shoulder that whispered into his ear. We love our idols; otherwise, we wouldn't have them, and it's painful to forsake them. Jacob continues in this, because he says, purify yourselves. What he's saying is that these foreign gods have made them ceremonially and morally impure. They have corrupted themselves with the pursuit of these false gods. And false gods will always corrupt you. Jesus is the only one who can remove that impurity. His blood alone has the power to purify us, to make us ceremonially clean again. His obedience and his, the work of the Spirit that He sends because of His death upon the cross is the only way we have power to become morally pure. So it's it's you know, purify yourselves, and he falls up with, change your garments. Isn't that kind of weird? Change your clothes. The garments apparently have been made filthy, stained, unclean. Think about this, uh, you know, in terms of the, the um, instruction from Leviticus, you know, when you're unclean, everything you touch becomes unclean. And necessarily, their clothes have become unclean with their sin. And so they needed a new change of clothes. Paul picks up on this in his letters. Not in the the ceremonial aspect, but in the moral aspect. And he uses that language of take off or change. From Ephesians 4, that they were taught to put off the old self, which belongs to their former nature of the manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness and he expounds on that through the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 you are to take off that which is associated with the old man to take off the sinful practices of the past and you are to put on the the, the righteous living that comes from Christ so sanctification is a putting off and a taking on. It's not just the putting off. In other words, Jesus doesn't want you walking around naked. He wants you well clothed spiritually. And then passage from Romans 13 that we talked about briefly in Sunday school that was important to the conversion of, of uh, Augustine. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The first part of that is to put on Christ. We need to put on Christ, we need to be dressed up in his righteousness, in his obedience because that's the only way that we can ultimately take a stand against the powers of the flesh. So idolatry must be met with a putting it away, a purification, and a change of life that is important. But here it is. The restoration of grace produces this change in us. It produces the repentance and the obedience. We just have to recognize what God's pointing to at that point. Which idol of yours he's identifying? So, let's go to the third aspect of this, is that God restores our sense of identity and our sense of hope. The people were obedient to what Jacob had said, which was good. They begin to travel up to Bethel. And what happens is is that on their journey, God protects them. He put a fear of Jacob into the hearts of of the cities that were around them, precisely such that no one pursued them for vengeance. God took care of the nations. Jacob didn't have to. Okay. And just as when, when the people of Israel were about to come into the promised land, God was going to deal, deal with them. Okay, They didn't need to be overwhelmed with fear about these people. They could walk confident that God was walking ahead of them and putting the fear of Him into those people. And so... What we see here is that again, God shows up, he appears to Jacob in Bethel. Grace brings us into this increasingly deeper relationship with him. Okay? Losing sight of grace, on the other hand, is essentially a loss of our identity or our purpose. Jacob forgot he was Israel. And he's kept acting like Jacob. I'm reminded of um, Saving Private Ryan. There's this one, one scene where Captain Miller is finally opening up and talking to one of the men under his care. And, he, and I'm always struck by this. This is one of the things that, that keeps coming back to me with that movie. Every time I kill someone, I'm farther away from home. He was recognizing that even though it was a just war, that the killing of another man impacted his soul in a profound way, and every time he did it, he found himself being less the person he used to be. And that's one of the subplots that is running through that movie, is that Sergeant, uh, sorry, Captain Miller is coming apart at the seams. He's able to hold it together usually when everyone's around, but when he's alone, you see him start to tremble. The war was breaking him to pieces. He was losing his sense of who he was. He was no longer the teacher, he was now the captain. And it was wreaking havoc with his soul. And we see this in the life of Jacob. He was moving farther away from Israel and back to Jacob. And so the first thing that God does here when He shows up at Bethel is says, Israel shall be your name. He's not saying something new, but He's reminding him of something that has already taken place. But He's saying to them, it's it's in a sense a rebuke, that now you need to start living like Israel instead of Jacob. He restored the sense of who he was in God. And so God often comes to us and restores our sense of who we are in Christ because that is essential to us manifesting that life. And so we need to be listening when the scripture tells us who we are in Christ. That if you are united to Him by faith, you are a justified person. You are accepted as righteous in God's sight. You don't have to try and make yourself acceptable to Him. You rest in it. That if you are in Christ, you are adopted into His family. You are a son of God and you enjoy rights and privileges from Him. You are beautiful and lovely in His sight because you're His child. If you are in Christ, His Spirit is in you, and you are part of the living temple, a place of worship. You are one of those that, that, that Paul, uh, sorry, Peter says in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, you are part of a royal priesthood. You are part of a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God. That should change how we view ourselves and therefore how we act. Because we say, certain things are wrong for me if I am part of a royal priesthood. If I am part of a holy nation, there are are things that I should not do and things I should do by God's grace. So he, he seeks to restore his sense of identity that he might give him hope for the future. But he also reminds Jacob of who he is. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. The one who is able, more than able, to do everything that he has promised Jacob. Jacob because he's about to um, reiterate some of the promises that have been made. And, and Jacob needs to know that the God who says this is the God who can keep this. It is not up to Jacob to do it. It is up to God to bring it to pass. He needs the, Jacob needs that confirmation, that encouragement from him. And so God offers it to him. I'm God Almighty. I got it. Relax. be fruitful and multiply oh he's just he's reiterating creation mandate fill the earth fill the promised land with obedient worshipers go for it now of course he's speaking to a guy who's pretty old at this point this for Israel. Be fruitful and multiply. Be faithful. You know, fill this land. That's why we talk about the, the Dutch, what's a Dutch revival? The making of babies. What? What? Okay. There's an aspect that we as God's people should be seeking to be fruitful and multiplying. Physically. So that we then Instruct our children in the ways of the Lord and who He is. Sometimes we are providentially hindered from being fruitful and multiplying, and that's okay. But we also have to practice Matthew 28. To go into the nations and make disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so this this ties into that. We're to be spiritually fruitful and spiritually multiplying, not just making babies, and that's good, but also making baby Christians and helping them to become mature Christians. It doesn't stop when they've walked the aisle or raised their hand. It continues. just like your growth continued. Physically. Your parents didn't say, oh, wow, I've had a baby. Hey, you know, Daniel, you can put put Bruce down and it's all all right. (laughs) No, no, just leave the baby there. He's got to grow up on his own, right? He'll be fine. Oh, you continue to instruct and to nurture and to discipline, to clothe and to feed and to change. And as he grows, he is able to do more and more for himself. And that's the way it is spiritually. Maybe Christians need lots of care and love, and as they grow, they need less, and they begin. They begin to eventually begin to care for someone else. You know, my my kids can feed the dog. Okay, you know, you get it, right? Okay. Ah, oh, boy. Um, last last command, last promise he gives. He said, I will give this land to your offspring. He says, I gave it to Abraham. I gave it to Isaac, your father. I gave it to you, and, and now I'm going I'm to give it to your offspring. Jacob doesn't have to scheme it. He doesn't have to buy it. God's going to give it. And so, you know, are we going to trust God to keep his promises to us, the promises that we find throughout Scripture and predominantly in, in the New Testament? Are we going to believe that all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells us in Corinthians? Or do we think that we've got to make it happen? Now, I'll be fair. In Eric Metaxas' uh, speech, he, he had some really bad theology at one point. President Obama also had some really bad theology at one point in his, his speech because he talked about us bringing in the kingdom. Jesus brings in the kingdom. When you look at the scriptures, it never talks about us bringing in the kingdom. We pray, thy kingdom come. We we work in such a way to maybe hasten that day, but he is the one who brings it. He is to bring the kingdom. Are we trying to do His job? So spiritual declension, let's go back to that beginning point, is really an application of the second law of thermodynamics. When we lose sight of grace, we lack the power to grow or even to maintain our spiritual lives but God graciously restores us so that we will grow in repentance, we will grow in obedience, we will grow in our knowledge of who we are in Christ. And one practical aspect of that is the putting away of idols, of turning our backs on them. So where do you need God to be restoring grace in you? Where is it that you have lost sight and need Him to restore it. Let's pray. Father, um, we all are in the same boat, whether we want to admit it or not. We all struggle with idols, with things that we make just as important as You or maybe even more important than You. And we're blind to that. And we desperately need You to show us what they are. Whether You bring alongside a brother or sister who sees it and can gently tell us. Whether it's our circumstances that reveal it because You take it away whether it's reading Your Word and the spirit of, uh, Your Spirit powerfully convicts us, but we ask that You would do it. That as we prepare to remember the, the cross, the resurrection, that this would be a season in which You do ruthless work to our hearts that we might put away our idols. Be gracious to us, even in that. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.